All right, let's get after it. Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we've got a lot to do this morning, um, and it will be uh, very interesting for us. Hebrews chapter 7. Just got back from Camp Blessing again yesterday. I uh, finished up my second week there. I made a commitment to them to do two weeks up there, and so have finished that. Got back yesterday, and uh, I was a little worried going up this past week. Uh, this was the first time in a while I've gotten a new camper, and I was going up a little bit late so I could do some stuff here Monday and attend some meetings. Uh, and so Monday night is usually when they select the campers, and so the counselors will get together and pick a camper. Uh, and then I was going up late Tuesday, right before the campers got to camp. So I was worried that what was going to happen is the, the little cabin circle, uh, as they were picking campers, every camper would get selected except for like the nightmare camper, like the real like extraordinarily behavior problem like camper and that was going to fall to me uh, then as I was going up there I got a text saying I was in a certain cabin that I knew was the wheelchair cabin uh, which is typically the harder cabin um, just because of all the things involved with wheelchair um, kids who are confined to wheelchairs and so I got up there and I, I got a camper sweet little kid uh, who apparently historically has had awful behavior problems um, and, and so um, I mean his teacher was there and his, was kind of explaining like hey we're we're really watching out for him. He has autism. Um, and we had a great week. Not one problem at all. And so I've decided to call myself the Autism Whisperer. <laughs> and I'm working on the rights for a TV show uh, for it. Um, but it was a great week. Uh, just so amazing to be a part of, of what's happening there at Camp Blessing. Uh, again, I want to send thanks to you from them for the way that you've partnered with them. I'll let you know also, just a little bit, in a few weeks, uh, I'll be taking a group up there on a Friday night um, from the church. Uh, to go see the cross carry, have dinner with some of the leadership, and see the cross carry. And so Friday night is kind of the big night at Camp Blessing. They, they pray with all the campers around a cross, uh, and then they do the night of worship together. It's just a great night to come to see what's happening at the camp. Uh, so it's just an hour drive. Uh, so I'll give you the date on that when we set it up. Um, but myself and a few others will be just going up there uh, to enjoy. And so it would be a great chance to see what's happening, kind of check it out uh, if you're interested in that. Um, also, uh, be sure to look at the back of your worship guides for announcements. Um, there are some important ones. The most important is next Sunday uh, will be a very important Sunday in our church's life. And so uh, around January, we have a state of FC Cube kind of address. Uh, typically, as we implement the new budget and I kind of go over where the church has been, where we're going. Uh, consider next Sunday kind of a middle of the year state of FC Cube. Uh, so some very important things will be discussed uh, and be started in our church life. Uh, so you don't want to miss it. Also, if you have friends or family who are not here, be sure to text them, email them, call them. Hey, be there next Sunday uh, because we need to be here so that we can talk uh, and get some things on the table. So we are in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, we started Hebrews by saying sometimes the Bible seems like it's the answer to questions that we didn't have. Uh, and so that's kind of why it can sometimes be frustrating and difficult to get into and to understand. Um, part of that is, is maybe we're a little lazy in our thinking. The other part of that is we're so far removed from the culture and the context of the scriptures. Um, and Hebrews 7 is one of those passages. And so I think you could probably go your entire Christian life uh, without wondering about what Hebrews 7 is going to explain to us, um, which is primarily the role of, of Melchizedek in explaining Jesus and his work. Um, but I believe, as I hope you do, that all the scriptures were given to us by God, 2 Timothy 3, uh, that we would be equipped for the work of ministry. Uh, and so we're going to go through the scriptures with an eye out to what God wants to teach us, um, and also with an um, eye out to the fact that this is, again, a sermon. I mean, we saw that. We, we talked about it when we started off Hebrews. It's a word of exhortation from a pastor to a congregation of people, and he's trying to get them to hold more and more faith in Christ. So this is not just a weird, technical, theological um, 
idea or theory or observation in Genesis or wherever. Um, this is an idea, this is a um, belief that he wants his readers to hold on to tightly so that they would be encouraged to have faith, to be strong, to endure. And so we'll walk through Hebrews 7. Um, it will get dense and wordy here and there, uh, but we will make it through and we will keep an eye out to how um, this is um, supposed to um, increase our hope and faith in Christ. And so we'll pick up in verse 1, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, so we are now into this chapter. It's all about Melchizedek. And so the author has hinted at wanting to talk about Melchizedek. He's even stopped for about a chapter to prepare us, to say, hey, you need to think deeply about this. And now he launches into a chapter-long discussion about this figure of Melchizedek. And once again, this is someone that you and I might go our entire Christian's life without Hebrew 7, without ever wondering about. But lucky for you and I, he's going to give us 28 verses of explaining who Melchizedek is and why he's important to us. And so we'll jump into that. The reason why he wants to talk about Melchizedek is because of Psalm 110. So we've seen Psalm 110 is very, very, very important to Hebrews, to how the author of Hebrews sees Jesus and understands who Jesus is. Um, There's another psalm that's also real important, Psalm 2, um, but Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament particularly in reference to who Jesus is, to explaining who Jesus is. So Jesus himself in the Gospels will quote Psalm 110. Paul will quote it often. Hebrews, some have said, is really one sermon on Psalm 110. It's very important to the author. And so keep your finger in Hebrews, but I want us to flip to Psalm 110. I want us to read just the first four verses here uh, so we can kind of get a feel for why this is so important to the author of Hebrews and, and kind of what direction this is going to take him in in our discussion. So Psalm 110, if you're in the Black Bible in front of you, I think it's page 509. I will pick up in verse 1. This is the Psalm of David, King David. And he says this, The Lord, all caps, so God, says to my Lord, to my King. So this is interesting. David, the King, is talking about a king above him who's under... God, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so the first verse is the one that gets quoted a lot. This is the one Jesus quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the one Paul quotes when he says, death is the final enemy to be defeated. So God has promised that the king will defeat all enemies. Death is the final one. There will be no death once Jesus' work is complete. And the author is reading Psalm 110 and really wanting to dive into who Jesus is and understanding him. And he gets to this fourth verse and it sparks kind of an interest in him. Because not only is there a king coming that God's people are looking out for who would bring God's victory, but he's a priest. 
And he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is someone we only find one other place in the scriptures. One other place. He's nowhere else. Not once mentioned anywhere else. And after Psalm 110, not mentioned again until Hebrews 7. And so what happens to the author is he's trying to unpack Psalm 110, he goes, where do we see Melchizedek? And he jumps back to Genesis. So we find him in Genesis 14. So that's what we see in the first three verses here in Hebrews. Uh, he's recounting the story that we find in Genesis 14. So if you keep your finger once again in Hebrews 7, we'll come right back to it. Flip to Genesis 14. Real short mention of Melchizedek. In Genesis 14. We're going to pick it up in, in verse 17. Verse 17, after his return, we're talking about Abram, before he was renamed Abraham. After his return from the defeat of Big C, uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that is all that we know or hear about Melchizedek, again, until Psalm 110, and until Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written. And so you have Abram, who, again, will emphasize this, is a very important part in the story of God. Remember in Genesis 12, he's given the promise that God's going to turn the ship around. He comes back here in verse 17 from a war. He defeats some kings. He's coming back and he meets a king. And the king, we're told, is also a priest. Which is interesting because he's not really part of the story. We've never heard of him. He's not with Abram. He's not in Abram's family, in Abram's group. But somehow he's a priest of God. So a bridge between God and man. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. And Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. So Abraham kneels down before him and gives him 10% of his spoils. So when we flip back to, to Hebrews 7, he's recounting the story. He wants to get into Melchizedek. He wants to understand Psalm 110. And he recounts the story. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, comes back and meets Abraham coming back from beating the kings. And Abraham tithes a tenth part of everything. He is first verse 2 by translation of his name. So just in Hebrew, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Melech, king, Zadik, righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, very similar to Shalom, that is king of peace. Now, does that sound like someone we know? King of righteousness, king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, people get tripped up here. Is the scripture saying that Melchizedek is eternal? Did he have no beginning? Did he have no end? No, what he's saying here, he's referring to the story in Genesis. And so Hebrews takes Scripture very seriously, every detail of Scripture. And he's saying, in the story of Genesis, we're not told who Melchizedek was born to. We're not told that he even died. So usually, particularly in Genesis, when a character is introduced, they're going to tell you his father, they're going to tell you the time period that he lived in, his descendants, all these things. We get none of that with Melchizedek. In the story in Genesis, he's just there. And he's a priest. And he's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And in verse 3, he says he is one who resembles the Son of God. So what Hebrews sees as he looks back to Genesis 14 is that this story foreshadows Jesus' work. Already we see a similarity between Melchizedek 
and between Jesus. And he's saying, once again, like God has done in so many ways, he has painted on the canvas of history a pointer toward Jesus. And we'll keep explaining it here in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might, catch this verse 9, even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek (coughs) met him. So I'll take the glaze over look in your eyes as, uh, please explain this. Um, And so we'll, we'll walk through this here. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, check out that Abraham the patriarch, Abraham, the one who received the promise, tithes to Melchizedek. He says, surely the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's established here, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And now what happens, at this time there's no temple, there's no priest or anything like that. But Abraham has descendants. He has a a descendant named Aaron, who would then have a son named Levi. And from the tribe of Levi, you would get these priests, who we've talked about um, throughout Hebrews. These priests who would serve as human representatives of God, a bridge between God and man, who would go into the temple, make sacrifices, do all of those pastoral things for the Israelites. And so here's, what he, here's the big genius move. Here's the chess move that you need to notice in verse 9. He says, One might say that Levi himself tithed to Melchizedek because he was metaphorically in the loins of Abraham. This is the big move here. He's saying, hey look, the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood that would come through the law and through Levi. This is the first move in his argument. He looks back at Genesis and says, Abraham tied to Melchizedek. Levi tied to Melchizedek. So when we see a promise to look for a priest after the order of Melchizedek, he's saying, hey, we should be looking for a priest who's going to come and be superior to what we've experienced so far. In the temple system, in the priesthood system, in the law that we've been given. Abraham, he, he tied to Melchizedek. And we see that Melchizedek, he was a, a king priest. He was a king and a priest appointed by God. So he, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi or Aaron. He was simply made a priest by God. Um, and then we notice again that he was superior to Abraham. He was superior to Abraham and more importantly to Levi, to the priesthood that would come. And now this is important to Hebrews, um, maybe more important than it is to us, um, because he's going to make the argument that Jesus has now stepped into this role, making the law and the Levitical priesthood obsolete, making us no longer in need of that. So look in verse 11 here. Now, perfection, if you're underlining or, or highlighting, there's a few things we'll look at, but underline perfection here. We're going to see this word three times. It's very important in Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? 
For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. It's evident that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priest. 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it's witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, verse 4, Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Here's our second word, maybe circle. This is what I know in my Bible. Circle better. Perfect. Better. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, this, I promise you, is not as confusing as maybe it seems just reading through it. Um, The first thing that we need to establish here is this word perfection, which is going to be so important to the argument here. We think of the word perfection in kind of a different way than um, ancient people think of the word perfection, uh, or, or maybe even just Easterners. Uh, and so, how we should define this, how we should see this, maybe even a better translation would be completion. It's the Greek word telos, and the idea is that, that you reach a goal. So perfection, to, to the Hebrews, wasn't so much maybe just having the perfect characteristics and no flaws, but it was getting to where you're supposed to go. It was arriving at its destination, being used for what you were supposed to be used for. That was perfection, completeness, telos. And the idea here is that perfection, in verse 11, could not be attained by the Levitical priesthood and the law. So God, he had initiated a plan of perfection through Abraham. This is Genesis 12. I'm going to take creation to a certain end, to a certain goal. One where I've rescued and redeemed and forgiven, where I've gotten rid of sin and death and evil and Satan. He establishes his plan through Abraham, and over time, certain things are added to the plan, such as the law, and such as the Levitical priesthood. So God gives the Israelites the Torah, the law, and this is his instructions for what life should look like as his people. I mean, we've talked about this. This is not necessarily a work salvation type thing where he says, you meet these ten rules and I'll let you in. This is instead, hey, you're in, this is how you should live. Don't kill each other, don't lie to each other, don't steal each other's wives, like this is what life should look like following me. He gives them the law. And then he gives them the Levitical priesthood. He gives them these people to lead his people, to go before God on their behalf and offer sacrifices, to go to men on God's behalf and say, hey, this is how you should live, this is how you should repent, this is how you should follow God. But the author here says, if perfection could be reached through these means, if we could have gotten to the end of God's salvation and forgiveness and new creation through these means, then why in Psalm 110, in this important prophecy, does he tell us to look for a new priesthood? One that's not from Levi, one that's not from the law, one that's not from Abraham, but one that's from Melchizedek. He says all all along, Hebrews says the scriptures were pointing to us that these things, the law, the priesthood, they were not meant to be permanent. 
They're not meant to be permanent in, in God's people's lives. So Galatians 3.24, Galatians 3.24 would say that the law was given to God's people as a guardian, the Torah, a guardian. You could translate that a babysitter. Like it was given to take care of God's people until the time was right for God to advance His purposes completely and fully. Um, the Old Testament, Hebrews particularly, is going to say over and over again, um, the Old Testament is a, a shadow, it's a pointer towards Christ. He's been painting all these pictures to try to help us understand who Jesus is and what He's done. Melchizedek is one of them. The law is one of them. The temple priesthood is one of them. But now we have the fulfillments. And the one who arises like Melchizedek. All along the scriptures with the promises are teaching God's people to look and long for something better. For something better. Once again, in Hebrews, the comparison between the old and the new is not between bad and good. It's between good and better. And so this is important to people in the first century who maybe are struggling more with the difference between Christianity and and Judaism than we are. I mean, we're very comfortable thinking Jesus is his own kind of thing. For them, they really struggled with how do we relate to the law? How do we relate to the priests, to the temple system, to sacrifices? And this is how he's connecting it here. He's saying that was good, and God did give us that, but they were meant to at one point be replaced by something better. But the fulfillment of what those things pointed to, Colossians, the shadow of those things. They were all shadows that God painted for us that we would find the reality in Jesus. And so Jesus has, with an indestructible life, with an oath made by God, given us a better hope through which we draw near to God. He's, verse 22, made Jesus a guarantor of a better covenant. We'll flesh this out more in future chapters, this idea of covenant. God makes a promise with his people that he'll save them, redeem them, that they will be his. He'll have relationship with them. What happens to the Old Testament is God's people break that covenant, but God promises to renew it. How is He going to renew it? Through the king, through the priest. Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 are going to say this covenant has been renewed through Jesus. But then look at verse 23 here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office 24, but He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So he starts to, to apply this to his community. Here's his pastoral heart coming out. He's trying to, again, he's been saying this, there's nothing that we can learn about Jesus that's not going to be beneficial to us. Particularly something that's in such an important key to understanding Jesus. Psalm 110. What does it mean that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek? It means this, perfection is arriving. It means a new covenant has been made. It means God's plans in Genesis 12 have started to reach the reality. 
It means that there is now a high priest that those other high priests pointed towards. That the sacrifices pointed towards, the law pointed towards. It means that on the cross something real and powerful happened. That we're living in a new age. And so he says that if he, he compares Jesus' priesthood to the, the older priest. And he says, hey, here's the problem with priests. And really any kind of pastor, mentor, leader type. Is they just keep dying. I mean, they just constantly die, and no matter how good they are, no matter how bad they are, eventually they'll be gone, and you'll have to find another. He says, but, but here's this great thing about this high priest. He's not going to die again. He lives forever. And he looks back at Psalm 100 and says, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Just like Melchizedek had no end in Genesis, Jesus' high priesthood has no end. He reaches perfection. He can lead us to our goal. His high priesthood is permanent. It's eternal. It's perfect. And because of this, he says in verse 25 here, I squared this little verse. It's a great memory verse maybe this week. Verse 25. Consequently, because of his work, because of who he is, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the move he makes. Because of what we know about Jesus, because of what we can learn about Jesus, it leads us into assurance, into hope, which we've seen is going to lead us into endurance, strength, obedience, faithfulness. He says, Jesus is our high priest. First John, when we sin, he's pleading as an advocate for the Father. He's standing over us in the Father's presence saying, that's mine, you are mine. I have bought them. They are my people. I've forgiven them. You are loved. And he said, because we know that, consequently, for those who draw near to God through Him, He can save to the uttermost. I love that. His salvation, life, joy, wholeness, forgiveness is available to the uttermost at all times in all situations those who draw near to Him. He was saying, we, we know salvation is found fully and only in Jesus, in His work. When we draw near to God through Jesus, we find all of salvation. He's able to save to the uttermost because of who He is, because of the office that He holds. And we see... an an aspect of exclusivity, exclusivity, exclusive, exclusive, exclusivity, exclusivity. I'm done. We need some editing software for the podcast. You see, an aspect here of, of exclusiveness. It's found through Christ. Those who draw near to God through Him, you you draw near to God through somewhere else, through another person, through another. Route another path. What are you going to find here? You're not going to find the salvation that He offers. If you go with the temple system, it's not there. If you go with your own kind of self-help, self-worth, it's not there. If you go with another religion, it's not there. It's through Him that salvation is found. It's those who draw near to God. Verse 26, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It was fitting it was fitting, he, said, he says, it makes sense. And in a sense, he's saying, hey, this is perfect for us. 
He's talking to his community in the first century. He says, it's fitting that because of who you are, you have this kind of high priest. And he's talking to you and us in the 2011 Sugar Texas, saying, because of who we are, the situation we find ourselves in, it's fitting that we have such a Savior. One who can save us to the uttermost because we are weak, because we are frail, because we fall away fast, because we need Him more than we can imagine. It's fitting that we have such a high priest. One who, who doesn't need to make sacrifices daily. Verse 27, because once for all, He offered him, Himself up. He offered up Himself. This is a, a unique aspect to His priesthood. In the past, priests sacrificed animals. This priest sacrifices Himself. His sacrifice, it seems, was the, the plan of God all along. It was what all of these things were pointing towards. He was saying, we found it. We see it. We've grasped it. It's started. The king has come, the priest, after the order of Melchizedek. When there's no beginning, no end, who's a priest forever. Who's the same one who conquers all of God's enemies. He's here. It's fitting. Remember, this is a, a pastor pleading with his people to press into Christ and to stay strong, to endure through whatever life throws at them. This is not a, a, a weird or abstract theological observation. This is not just a cute twist of words in Genesis and Psalm 110. This is the author saying, we need to zero in on everything we can possibly know about Jesus so that it can anchor our souls. Remember chapter 6? can anchor our souls to hope, which will lead us into endurance. The author, he's pleading with his people. He's saying, this is what our faith is put in. So here's, here's the interesting thing about faith. More times than not, what we need is not more faith. We need correct faith. More times than not, you don't need to be guilted into somehow trying to put more faith in something or by doing something. You just need a bigger vision of what your faith is in. You just need to know this is who Jesus is. This is what he's saying. This is our high priest. This is how he saved us with his sacrifice. And that will enlarge your faith. That will have you grasp on through whatever comes your way. And so he's pleading with his people saying, this is why you've got to zero in on every single piece. And so again, we said, some of us might have gone our whole lives without ever wondering about Melchizedek, but he thinks it's so important. Interestingly enough, no one other than them has ever wondered about Melchizedek. After Psalm 110, no one wrote about it. In fact, maybe the only reason in history we still remember this is because he wrote about it in Hebrews 7. Until he wrote it, no one else did. He might have been the first one to ask this question. But from his perspective, thinking deeply about Jesus was his shot to stay connected to who he was. It was his shot to vital vibrant life in Christ. And so he wants his, his congregation to realize Christian faith is centered on Jesus, on his life, on his work. One of the greatest dangers for them and for us is that we would somehow lose focus on Jesus. So we'd somehow get off track a little bit. And so in their context, there are different dangers and temptations facing them. In our context, there's different dangers and temptations facing us. Um, I've seen this a lot and, and I've experienced it myself. Sometimes it's really easy to, to misplace or to switch Jesus out with morality or, or kind of rules or this, this conforming to this atmosphere or expectations. 
And before we know it, we, we don't have Jesus. We don't have faith in Him. But we, we're simply playing some kind of game. Some kind of moralistic game with a God who's very far away. And it's really more about us and a system we've created than about a man who entered into history as God and is doing a work that He invites us into. Christian faith that's centered around Jesus. To be a Christian quite simply means He defines us. We're His. He defines us. So we can get distracted with morality, with rules. We can get distracted with religion. With church. Church can be a big distraction. Programs and groups and all these things. Because sometimes we're not careful to distract us from Jesus. Sometimes we can get distracted by, by sin. By temptation. By, I mean, all the things that exist in our culture. Materialism. Pride. Money. All, I mean, all these things. And he's pleading with the congregation, is don't lose focus on him. Don't lose it. Zero in with everything that you've got. He wants his, his congregation to realize that the Christian life is one that revolves around him and him alone. Again, to be a Christian means you're defined by him. It means every part of your life, every aspect is defined in relationship to him, to who he is, to what he does, and what he calls of you. So when he says in the Father's presence that you are his, that he has died for your sins, you are forgiven, loved, accepted, adopted into the family, you said that that's my identity. That's who I am. Despite my past, despite my weaknesses, I find my I'm defined by him, by what he says about me. I'm not so much concerned anymore now about what others say about me, whether it's getting praise or criticism. Because He defines me. What matters to me is how I am in relationship to Him. So when He says, live a certain way, love your wife or your husband in a certain way. When He says, live in relationships with people around you in a certain way. When He says, spend your money like this. We say, okay. We say, our hands are open. You define us. We're yours. Everything's on the table. When He says, you have one purpose in your life, and that's to make disciples. We say, okay. We're yours. You define us. Our whole life, every aspect, is revolving around you. So we let go of it, an American dream. We let go of childhood plans and dreams and hopes. And we say, we'll join you on your mission. Our lives revolve around you. You define us. So Christians throughout... History have recognized this and have tried to to keep their eyes on Christ. And, and I mean, we, it's part of the reason we have community to constantly remind each other, to grow with each other. Uh, I was reading this week and, and was interested by um, there's a saint, Saint Ignatius of Loyola, um, and he had this practice called the examine, and and it's kind of kept up throughout history. And and basically what it is, and it's been tailored and switched around here and there. But it's this, this discipline, the spiritual discipline of daily was how it's supposed to be. People have adopted it weekly or monthly or however you do it. Um, having yourself ready a, a list of questions, very pointed questions for you that you would journal through and prayerfully and honestly answer. And so real fame, I mean, the question would be like, where today did you have faith in Christ? So I would be sitting down and answering this question. Where today, what part of my life was I loyal to Jesus? Was I defined by Him? So I go through my, hey, at that situation, my attitude was defined by Him. My reaction was defined by Him. 
Where in your day, where in your life are you not loyal to Jesus? Were you not loyal? Were you not defined by Him? Man, in that, I, I just absolutely wasn't. The, the way I did that, no, that, that wasn't there. Perfectly, honestly, thoroughly going through these questions. And then tailoring for... So maybe you have a hard time seeing your life as part of the mission of God. And so where today did I join Christ on His mission? Where today did I see that person as someone God's working in and on and for me to step in and help disciple and love and share? Where today did I ignore that? Where did I miss that? This is, this is one man's practice. St. Ignatius has examined... Really, I mean, this is just the basic. We come back to this, I see, a, a lot. Just living intentionally. Like, not letting life live us. Not waking up in ten years and going, what happened? But zeroing and focusing in on who Christ is. See, faith is not just this intellectual proposition. It's not an agreement to a mental set of, of statements. It's a life lived in loyalty to Jesus. It's a life lived defined by Him. That's what faith is. It's a life that revolves around Him. This is in every aspect of my life. You decide. You control. You are what matters. Everything's on the table. You control me. Did you know this? Um, that the most common term for you and I as Christians in the New Testament is not Christians. I mean, that wasn't. Uh, it's not even followers. It's not disciples. Anything like that. The most common way that we are to describe the title given to us as followers of Jesus is slave. Dulas. In scripture, you say, you don't even have a choice of whether you want to be a slave or not. You are. It's just what you're a slave to. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. And if you can sit down in your life and go through your life and realize you're not a slave to Christ, there's one alternative. Whether you fooled yourself with morality and church or maybe got distracted by the world, you're either defined by Him or you're not. And so he sits back and he, he wants to unpack the, some of the greatest promises and prophecies about who Jesus is. What does it mean that he's a king and that he's a priest at the same time that he, even though he's not from Levi, that tribe is a priest. He's after the order of Melchizedek. What is his sacrifice? How does that define, how does that lead me into the future? This is the oath that in verse 28 it appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. It appoints one who's reached his destination in the Father's presence who's leading us there. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for our time this morning. I pray that we would um, be given clarity and, and be spoken to even in, in confusing maybe passages and the place where the scriptures maybe get wordy and um, frustrating to us. Uh, I pray that we would have our eyes open up to more and more of who you are and what you've done. Um, that we would define our entire lives around you and your son. That you would have us. It's not a choice between being our own person or being yours. It's a choice between finding salvation and life and joy or finding death, the result of our, our sin. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the assurance that you give us that because of who you are, you're able to save to the uttermost. And so we draw near to God through you. Help us. We need you.
be constantly focusing our eyes on you. It's in your son's precious and beautiful name that we pray. Amen.